I would love to have a very human conversation with a mayor and say, I appreciate that you have political pressure from today's constituencies, you know, to, to perform, to do something good, to show progress or what have you. But who are your real constituents? How will you be remembered? This is where I would want to bring legacy into the conversation with mayors and say, whatever you're doing today has a consequence. That could be a good consequence. It could be a negative consequence into the future. You may only measure it according to the next re-election campaign or the, the next election cycle. But remember, your legacy is important. How do you want to be remembered? Because if you are creating these long-term obligations that you know one constituency doesn't have to deal with, it gets pushed off onto the next generation, that's again where I think you've got to have a human conversation, not a political or, or public policy conversation, to say, are you going to own this? Are you going to own this? Because this is on you. You're doing this not for the next generation, but to the next generation. And, and you may be reaping political benefits in the immediate, but keep in mind, it's your children and grandchildren that will put you under a very different lens. Whether you're reelected or not, they will remember you and they will record this as either a benefit or a cost to society. You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. David McElvaney is the CEO of the McElvaney Financial Companies, International Collectors Associates, ICA Europe, and the McElvaney Wealth Management. He is a well-regarded speaker and analyst on finance and financial markets. You can hear him weekly on one of my favorite podcasts, the McElvaney Weekly Commentary. He's here today uh, graciously to discuss his new book, The Intentional Legacy, which was released last year. David McElvaney, welcome to the Strong Downs Podcast. It's great to be with you. Thanks so much. What uh, inspired you to write this book? As my wife and I were kind of looking at our lives, reflecting on where we're at and where we're going, we wanted to make sure that we were as intentional as possible and where we needed some design elements, um, you know, some things that could be planned and structured into the decisions we were making, be clear on what our priorities were, what our goals were, uh, and what we hope to accomplish in the time frame that we had with our kids, knowing that legacy is actually more than what you sort of sum up and total at the end of your life. It's an accumulation of the little decisions that you make along the way. And so we were just kind of doing an accounting for where we were at and wanted to make sure that we were allocating resources the right way. Not, not just financial resources, um, but emotional resources, intellectual resources, et cetera. So that was really the driving force was, you know, putting together our best effort and writing down and codifying what that looked like to be able to hand to four people, our kids, so that they knew what we were trying to accomplish and hopefully they could iterate and improve on it. How important is the, the modifier intentional to the, you know, the legacy that you're trying to leave? Why, why is it important, the intentional part of this? Yeah, because we all leave a legacy and some it's accidental. Some it's just, you, you get busy with life and, you know, decisions are made on the fly and there's not a lot of time in the modern world for thought, reflection and slowing down. And so perhaps the quality of decisions that we make is a little different than it might've been uh, in an earlier era. 
And so being intentional is really about dialing things back enough to ask the questions, uh, where are we going, what are we aiming at, such that when we are 70, 80, 90, however years old, looking back without regret, uh, but saying, yep, this is what we set out to do, we accomplished all that we could, recognizing that we're not in control of everything, but insofar as we could make some good decisions along the way, they were in alignment. You talk in the book about growing up, and I know you've got young kids, I, I do as well. We all at a certain point feel this urge to break free from our parents. I would join the military on my 17th birthday. That was my uh, getting out of Dodge kind of thing. You did something different. And I get the sense that it's a, it was a foundational story in a sense from the book, because you put it right up front and you referred to it a number of times. Can you chat a little bit about that episode and experience and, and how it shaped your life from, from that point on? Uh, you mean when in my teen years when uh, yeah. when I ran ran away from home, it was a pivotal moment in my life. Thinking about things in it, not in a very intentional way, just on sort of a, a more instinctive or or gut level, uh, what I wanted, and it took a full year and a half of sort of sorting through the short sightedness to realize that I could approach life in a different way. That that I don't know that intentional was the word that I would have used you know, a year and a half later, but recognizing that I needed to make a different set of decisions, things that, you know, would benefit me in the long run, not just have um, sort of immediate gratification. So it was in that sense, coming of age, it was a maturing process. And it was really pivotal because part of what triggered it was getting in trouble and experiencing forgiveness from my father and instead of him sort of throwing the book at me, uh, lowering the boom, giving me another chance, and I didn't deserve it, but it really caused me to give pause for the first time and want to approach life differently. As I was reading that, I was just thinking about how we have this cancel culture today where we really are very unforgiving of each other, particularly people we don't, we don't know. That story of forgiveness was a really powerful one. I know that's affected you. Has it affected how you've approached, you know, your work, your 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 own family, your relationships? Well, certainly, when you describe a cancel culture, and you see that uh, probably most on display through social media, where you don't have necessarily deep interactions with people, but you can write them off very quickly. You can respond to them in a way that is not particularly generous. Human. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And, and so I think one of the things that it underscores is the importance of relationship. And when you're in relationship and you're committed to a person, that there's really good times and there's sometimes not so good times. But what does it take to get through life with the people that you love and care for, or even the people that you work with? And, and there is sort of this deep level of commitment, maybe a value that's not as... Uh, routinely elevated in our culture today, but I, I, th I think it's very important. And in the context of family life, you find that taking away contingency in relationship is really helpful for deepening relationship and allowing for uh, real human flourishing to occur. I find the conversations that you have weekly on your podcast about risk management to be some of the the most interesting for me, and I, I get from a financial standpoint, when you're talking about mitigating risk and, and what have you, I'm an engineer, we do this with projects all, all the time, you know, we talk about the underlying risk, 
In the book, you brought this deeper, though, and you talk about disturbances in life. And just in a sense, it's almost risk mitigation for your legacy. What is the process you use to prepare for disturbances? And, and why, is that, uh, why is that an important part of building a legacy? Well, I think the reality is disturbance is a part of everyone's life. If you think about health issues or potential for business failure, moral failure, the loss of a loved one, um, divorce, a market crash, I mean, we're really talking about anything that undermines the status quo. And so if you put all those things in the category of disturbance, then I guess the question is, how do you deal with them, that they're inevitable things, how do you deal with them? What is the esprit de corps uh, in your, whether it's business or your home or in your personal life, is it the kind of thing where you just kind of curl up in a ball and suck your thumb? Or is there a way that you can look at it and actually have it be formational for you? A part of it is, this is kind of a fascinating thing to look at our own physiology, where if you look at something as a threat, versus a challenge, this, the difference in framing between threat and challenge changes your physiological ability to deal with pressure or crisis. I love taking my kids rock climbing and to the degree that they are playing a chess match on the rock and trying to solve problems and get the right moves down, as long as it's a challenge, they stay nimble, they stay engaged. When they begin to feel fear and experience threat and like, I'm gonna die here, then all of a sudden you have a change in blood pressure, you don't have as much ability to use your hands and feet nimbly, and you, your body ends up working against you just on the basis of framing. So I think all of life, if, you're, if you know you're going to be dealing with disturbance, the question is how do you approach that and how do you step into it in a way that ultimately is not debilitating but but allows you to best manage uh, that situation when i think about crisis or, or disturbance i kind of use those things synonymously i think sometimes crisis emerges because there's problems that have been ignored and it's a little bit like deferring maintenance right every system needs maintenance whether this is relational crisis or you know as as you talk about in your books maybe it's just deferring maintenance on a bridge or a road like ultimately crises emerge if you ignore the maintenance aspect where our opportunity is in the context of crisis is that it does at least on a personal basis better prepare us for the next crisis if we're willing to learn from uh, something that's not been, been done right uh, or learn through the midst of, of, of a challenging circumstance, it may in fact prepare us for uh, the next crisis. I'll just give you a, a brief example. My brother was involved in a search and rescue when he was 16 years old, and this was a plane that had crashed up in the Rockies. Weather was socked in, and the pilots were coming down from Denver, and they lost track of where they were and ended up in the side of a mountain. So he and one of his friends, uh, pretty skilled mountain climbers, end up getting up and, and securing the wreckage and, and bodies. And fairly big things for a 16-year-old. And, and as it turns out, this was sort of a crisis and a life experience which put him in an interesting place. December 2004, he's living and working at an orphanage in Bali, Indonesia, when the tsunami occurs. And 
he just doesn't think twice about loading up a bag of medical gear and heading down to the military base that's flying transports into Banda Aceh. And he and two friends are the first on the ground in Banda Aceh to helping people. This is three or four days before the Australian doctors showed up to, to give any professional medical help. But they're on the ground doing all that they can do. I look at that as one crisis or one very stressful circumstance, creating a space in which he was better prepared to be able to do something which was incredibly challenging. I think the last way of looking at crisis or, or disturbance, if you will, is, is seeing it as an opportunity. And certainly we see this in our practice in terms of wealth management, avoiding the pitfalls of today's investment markets creates opportunities for more intense and more acute growth opportunities tomorrow. So who can keep a cool head in the midst of panic? I mean, this is this is the, the Meyer Amschel Rothschild quote of buy when there's blood in the streets and sell too soon. And so that, that, that I think is maybe just one example of crisis being opportunity in disguise. You do, though, and I, you're a runner, right? You run marathons? Sure. And you talk about, you know, taking your kids mountain climbing. These are not adult kids. These are, young, you know, younger kids. I'm going to say it in a machismo way, but I think there's probably a, a better way to say it. There's a certain toughening up of your body, your psyche, your approach that you transfer not only to like wealth management, but also it seems like in, in reading your book and listening to you over the years into other aspects of your life. How much of that like preparedness is a part of, like you said, being cool, you know, when there's blood in the streets in a sense? I think it's a huge part of kind of daily, weekly, monthly routine. And it certainly is a part of our family culture where, you know, laughter, laughter is one of those things that factors into mental toughness. It's not just sort of grit and the determination that you would expect of, of, of a Navy SEAL or uh, uh, someone in the Marine Corps. But laughter, even gallows humor, is something that helps in the context of real challenge and struggle. Other-centeredness. This is a fascinating thing, but Lawrence Gonzalez wrote a book called Deep Survival, where he looks at the psychology of who does well and who suffers during, whether it's you've been marooned on an island or these sort of worst-case scenarios. And he sets up this story where historically two ships wrecked on an island, both on opposite sides of the island, and there's two very different outcomes because on the one hand, you've got kind of the dog-eat-dog, what's really depicted in the Survivor miniseries where you're just out for yourself. And in that case, historically, that ended in disaster. Everyone died. But where there was an other-centeredness and a team aspect and a working together and, and a striving to accomplish something together, they actually survived and thrived. So other-centeredness, laughter, the idea or the mindset that this too shall pass. You know, this last summer I did uh, the Alcatraz Triathlon and it's cold water, it's fast currents, you have no visibility. And part of my training for Alcatraz was uh, taking ice baths and cold showers. Because a part of the mindset getting into the water at Alcatraz, the only guy I know who's died in, in the water came from Texas, jumped in. It was so cold, he had a heart attack and died. And so this is either totally irresponsible for me to run this race, or I say to myself, what does it take to get into a mindset and have my physiology adapted sufficiently to 
this reality. This too shall pass. It's cold. Who cares? How long is it going to last? 30, 40 minutes? It's just not a big deal. And it's fascinating to see that happen with kids where when I was doing the ice baths, I would ask my kids, hey, you want to you try this? And, you know, there's hesitation. And you, my oldest boy is like, sure. And he jumps in for 10 seconds. And he thought that was a big deal. And then his little sister jumps in for a full minute. And of course, there's a little competition there. The idea that this too shall pass, it's something that if we believe that and if we've trained that into our bodies and mindsets, then when you encounter difficulty, it's not as if you crumble. You do have the wherewithal to to keep on going, keep on marching forward. I want to ask you a question about your chapter on, on legacy baggage. I'm going to take this in a direction and, and go ahead and push back or take it a different way. But as I was reading this, we had had a, a family friend that had passed away. And, you know, it was someone I knew, but they were, uh, you know, like a, a second relative. It wasn't someone I intimately knew or spent a lot of time with. But they were someone who had a little bit of a baggage along with them. I mean, we all do. It occurred to me as I was reading this chapter that as I was pondering this person's life, I very quickly moved past the negative baggage and I tended to like spin them in a, in a positive light. I, I think we saw this recently with Kobe Bryant, who you know was a, a good person, but also a, a flawed person who had made some serious mistakes that were very public. We tended to kind of gloss over those and focus on, on the good. It, it seemed to me like the message that you had in this chapter was that we should try to do that to ourselves. <laughs> you know, but, but maybe before we die, uh, be able to look at our own life and, and kind of clean some of this, uh, this baggage out. Did I miss the, the takeaway there or am I on? No. And again, we come back to the idea of forgiveness uh, in the context of relationship and and there being non-contingency in relationship. The reality is if you're going to deal with your own baggage or someone else's, it's pretty tough to get any of that done if, you know, the first time you have a difficult conversation, someone is packing their bags and moving to the front door. So there has to be you know, some interrelational skills developed, communication boundaries and, and rules in place where where respectful communication can occur. And then, you know, again, it's 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 both an inward look, but also, uh, you know, and an inward look is really looking forward because we are creating baggage for the next generation to some degree. And we need to take we need to own it and figure out how we can mitigate the consequences of that as much as possible. But it's also a backward looking project to the degree that we're dealing with the, the baggage of, of, of previous generations. And it, so what I mean by baggage, I mean, this this could be unresolved grief or hurt. I mean, there's conflict in relationships, sometimes uh, neglect, addiction, abuse. Baggage could be something much more material like, like financial debt or a physiological or psychological proclivity that, that is actually intergenerational where, you know, as psychologists would describe it, it's an endogenous problem. It's something that goes from one generation to the next. These are all things that if left in the negative, remain a burden in your life and may in fact become the burden for the next generation. And to me, this is a question of kind of with integrity, taking ownership of who we are and, and the mistakes that we've made that may end up being the baggage for the next generation. And to the degree that we have learned how to forgive and extend grace backwards, you're also sending something forward in the future, setting a standard, if you will, for the next generation to be able to do the same, to be able to, with grace, look and appraise how you've done, look at your scorecard and say, no, it's not perfect. It's not perfect. My scorecard isn't either. But 
we we don't have to be held hostage by the past either. You talk a lot about your family on your show, and in the book you write a lot about uh, about raising kids and and them being part of your legacy. I, I found it very interesting. I I wanted to give you a chance to to talk through this a little bit about how you kind of prompt the reader to be intentional about life with your kids. Mine are 14 and 12. And if you told me what was my life like 15 years ago, it seems like forever, but it seems like yesterday. How do you refocus or sit down and, and kind of take stock of where you're at with your kids so that when you get to the end of this journey or the turning point in this journey when they they move out or what have you, that you've you've built this legacy and the time didn't just flitter away. A couple of things come to mind is there is kind of an ingrained accountability doing a date night once a week with my wife where we have a venue not only to continue to invest in our relationship, but where we have the opportunity to reflect and touch base. What's working? What's not working? Is there a point of concern with one of our kids where there might be something where we need to spend a little bit more time? It could be my oldest son's math homework. He needs more help with that. It could be my daughter needs a little bit more time just of dad time, whatever it may be, because we're kind of keeping short accounts and that weekly routine is there, it allows for not too much time to go by without rectifying something that might need direct attention. I think the other thing that that stands out to me is, you know, we've created something of a family culture map. If you can imagine like the map that you might use if you're going on a long hike, you want to know the terrain you need to think about the distance that you're going to go. And you might even want to pre-think before you go on a hike or an adventure or a journey, what resources you're going to need along the way. We've tried to craft something like a family culture map for the areas that we want to grow and develop as a family. So in our family culture map, there's things like activities that we love to share. That may be playing cards or cooking together or going skiing on the weekends. It may be books that we want to have conversations about or literature, poetry that's been important to us that, you know, again, in the busyness of life, we may not ever mention to our kids, but to the degree that we've kind of laid it out and know where we're at, where we're going, it's just a reminder that these are things that we do want to bring into conversation with our kids. And, and there's other areas where, whether it's emotional development, spiritual development, character development, even just developing a respect for the past where we curate family memories. We make sure that there's a sense of identity. Who are we? What are the things that drive us and define us as a family? The characteristics that are quirky and kind of silly, but still are important. What we're driving at ultimately is defining cultural ethos. And and we want to create a context where our kids look back. For you, it would be with your 12-year-old and with your 14-year-old, where they look back with almost a sentimentality. Their hearts are tied to this family project. They loved what you did. They enjoyed what you did. They flourished and grew in the context of what you did. And some of those experiences don't have to be accidental. This goes back to this idea of intentionality. I think you can curate experiences of family life. And then these are the things that end up getting memorialized and sort of in the history of the family, the stories that are ultimately retold. That I think is, is, is a little bit of what I would say in answer to your question. You live in Durango, Colorado, which I think is like 20,000 people, right? That's about right, yeah. How does that fit, that smaller town setting? How does that fit with your idea of the intentional life you're working on? 
Yeah, the context that we choose has a huge impact. It's uncommon for us to think about going to a mall because the mall here is kind of measly and whatever. And, you know, I suppose if we live next to the Mall of America and that was the context that we grew up in, we might go there more often than we do. But but we don't. We live in a town where there's a river running through the city and people love to go kayaking and rafting. There are mountains within you know 10 minutes, 15 minutes of us. So to go hiking and rock climbing and backpacking, like these are the things that you do in your free time. If you're not interested in those things, you're not going to find yourself in a place like this. You're not going to want to stay. But if you live in a place like this, a lot of your free time is defined by what's at your fingertips. And so that's where I think choosing where you want to be as a family has a huge impact because these are ultimately things that define how we've spent our time together, how we've spent our time as individuals, and the things that sort of go into fortifying who we are as people. What is the role of community and your vision of legacy. You talked about doing things together. And I know a, a big part of the book is uh, family and immediate family and, and close friends. Obviously, you you have people you work with uh, there in Durango and around the world that, that mean a lot to you. But there's also this you know broader community that you're part of there in Durango and, and in that part of Colorado. How does that community part of it reflect on the legacy you're trying to build? It's a really important piece. And, you know, I borrow an idea from John Paul, who wrote an encyclical. I, I'm not Catholic, but I do like to read some strange things from time to time or just off the beaten track kind of things. <laughs> You're good. He, he was he was writing on the principle of subsidiarity and, and what he was addressing was how best to do welfare programs, essentially. And and he describes these concentric circles where in the middle is the need. And at the outside, the, the farthest reaching circles, you've got organizations and entities which really are far, far away from the need. And, and it was what he was describing is the people at the outside edge should not be trying to solve the problems right in the middle of the circle. It's the people closest to that should. So if I have a personal struggle or problem, my family is probably best suited to identifying what the issue is and helping solve that. The next concentric circle is my community, right? So outside of family, and I think we start almost in, in, in the way that Aristotle would with, with, with these you know, individual ingredients, the family is the foundation of the book, but I recognize that the next concentric circle out is community. And so to look at our friends, the way we spend time, whether it is uh, on the ski slopes or camping or spending time with other families within the community, this ends up reinforcing identity and values and priorities. There's nothing like having another father or mother have an influential role and voice into, into our kids' lives. And you know, when I look at the kinds of values that get expressed uh, on a routine basis in a place like Durango. This is a small town. This is a small town. Farmers markets are, are, are common. This is where we see all of our friends on a Saturday morning during the summertime. And, you know, after that, we may get together for barbecue in the afternoon. But there's a different dynamic in a small town where people recognize the value of community and we're living in a place. We, we share life in a place and it's a small place. It's not a big place. It's not a metropolis. Um, it's, it's not a sprawling, you know, mega anything. So you bump 
and rub shoulders with people. And, and that in itself defines ethics in a different way. When you know you're going to see someone probably tomorrow, next week, this month, boy, the way you drive around town and the way you honk your horn and <laughs> you, you, you tend to be more civil in a small town because there's greater consequences just given the scale of the population. So I think there's a lot of things that can be said about community and the way you live your life, the way you orient your life. But I know it has a huge impact for us as a family. I want to ask you a, a follow-up question and kind of segue into a, into finance. And this may be coming out of left field, but I, I think you'll connect the dots well. Yeah, I suspect a lot of people in our audience are familiar with the concept of the invisible hand from Adam Smith. I'm going to assume that many of them would probably equate that, you know, with the Gordon Gecko greed is good kind of thinking. But as I've listened to and read in a limited sense, but but really uh, heard other people discuss in depth. Adam Smith. I've got The Wealth of Nations sitting here. I have not read it. It's a monster of a book. I've I've scammed through it. You know, he talks about the the butcher and the brewer and the baker and and for me that's always kind of had this undercurrent of being people that I knew personally. How much of this angst that we have right now today over markets and capitalism and and growing inequality really flows out of the fact that a lot of our transactions are very impersonal. Buying a hamburger from McDonald's is way different than going to the local cafe and, and having a burger. Yeah, just as just as impersonal as buying something off of Amazon is different than buying from your local purveyor of goods or services. Now, I, th I think it's important when you think of Smith to remember that his first book was The Theory of Moral Sentiments. In that, he lays out sort of the structure of relationships and human interaction. So if we only look at the wealth of nations and see almost this scientific approach to how to transact and how to prioritize self-interest, we forget that there was kind of an ethical preamble which he wrote in the theory of moral sentiments, which is almost a necessary first step before you get into the practical machinery of the markets, because there is some practical machinery within the markets. You just have to be respectful of the butcher, the baker, and the brewer, where all of a sudden it's not impersonal interactions. They're very personal interactions. I want to ask you a question about housing and housing markets. We can not do this if you don't want, but I, I really value your insights on risk and the markets a lot. At Strong Towns, we have a lot of questions about housing. We discuss housing policy a lot. Advocates and people working on that tend to, in my opinion, not really grasp the nuances of the markets. And I often see people who are deeply embedded in the markets not grasping the nuances of how people live. Can you describe the effect that you see monetary policy and, and, and the way we've approached housing as like the economy now today has had on housing prices and, you know, in translating also into people's capacity to afford housing? Yeah, I, I think a couple of things happen. When I think about housing, I think first and foremost of shelter. I mean, this is where you have a roof over your head and it's a place where as an individual or as a collective, you're, it's, it's a safe place. What we've tended to see over the last 20 or 30 years as interest rates have come down is that it's a place to accumulate and grow wealth. And I think that's a very secondary issue, but it is one that if we make it primary, we begin to change our view of housing and what can be done with it for our benefit. Maybe we want to own three houses or five houses or 10 houses because of the potential capital gains or the income streams that are from them. But we rearrange our relationship to housing. Monetary policy 
today is something that further skews our view of, of housing in the markets. And today, we may take for granted, for those who don't follow monetary policy very closely, the degree of impact and involvement that our central banks are having on the markets and asset prices overall. But we would not have. We would not have the Dow at the current levels. Uh, we would not have the S&P and NASDAQ at the current levels. Uh, we wouldn't have bonds at their current levels if it weren't for the central banks of the world, European Central Bank, Bank of Japan, Federal Reserve here in the United States, uh, setting interest rates extraordinarily low. And ultimately, there's significant consequences to that. Why do I say ultimately? Because interest rates tend to run in cycles. In a 200-year period for U.S. interest rates, the longest cycle is roughly 37, 38 years. This is in either direction, either with interest rates increasing or decreasing. Shortest cycle in a 200-year period for U.S. interest rates is closer to 20, 22 years. When interest rates begin to change and move the other direction, there are significant impacts, right? So if I begin to raise interest rates, the cost of borrowing, that has a negative impact on the value of housing. So everyone who's treated housing as a one-way bet in a place where you're going to grow wealth, now all of a sudden you can see it as a liability, a place where you can lose money just as easily as you can gain money. And the same is true of, of bonds and stocks, increasing the cost of capital impacts their values negatively. So we have greater correlation today, housing stocks and bonds all moving up in the same direction at the same time. And that in itself is problematic because generally speaking, investors have wanted to say, yeah, if I own some real estate, if I own some stocks, if I own some bonds, I'm relatively well diversified. Now you can't make that case. And again, we go back to your, your key point here. It's the effect of monetary policy, which has created this sort of homogenous move in one direction. That means you don't don't have a lot of safety. You don't have in diversification today because of monetary policy. Now, I'll, I'll pause there because you may want to redirect the question a little bit or hone in on something because I might have even stepped beyond. No, that's wrote. fantastic. I, I really, I mean, the thing that I struggle with is when I go speak with cities and I go speak with advocates and I, I'm, I'm going around the country and I have a mayor come up to me and say, you know, I'm, I'm really concerned about people being able to afford to live in my city. What can I do? And they start talking about rent controls and price controls and, uh, you know, emergency measures and the government building housing. And, you know, the tools that you have at the local level are often very, very limited and the urgency is very real. I think sometimes it's hard to say, you know, we're all kind of adrift on this ship and the waters are kind of crazy and you don't control them. It's hard to explain that. How would you talk to a, a mayor or a local official who was in that kind of bind? The mayor and the local official, I want to step back for just a second. And there's a word that you used. Can you afford it? Affordability is a huge factor that I think is is misunderstood today, we consider it affordable if we can make a payment on it. This again is a major impact of, of monetary policy where you look at the national debt at 23 trillion, we're going to add a trillion this year, 1.3 trillion next year, and then about 1.3 trillion in addition to that every year for the next decade. And we say we can afford it because we've allowed the central banks to try to manipulate and control interest rates to a very low level. Affordability is a cash flow thing today. We don't think twice about spending 300,000, 500,000, a million, whatever it is to buy a house as long as we can quote unquote afford it from our current income. And it doesn't take into account the variability of that cost. 
Interest rates can go up just as well as they can go down. They're not a constant factor. And if you're stacking in a lot of debt, recognize that just as we saw crises in the 2007 and 2008 period, because you started having adjustable rate mortgages come into play, you have that same thing, which today can affect $250 trillion in global debt. The adjustable nature of it is if we can't pay off that debt, it's going to have to be refinanced and it's going to be on different terms. Assuming a higher interest rate level, that means significant economic pressure. You're not going to have the same kind of growth that we had over the next 10, 15, 20 years because all of a sudden affordability, we realize it's not just a question of cash flow today. It's the long-term commitments that we're making. And I really appreciate that about you pointing that out in terms of municipalities and the kinds of commitments they make in the immediate, not thinking about the long-term costs. It's just about the immediate benefit. So we get sucked into that thinking, oh gosh, you know, credit card bill, I, it's affordable. I, I, I can buy it today because it only costs you 25 bucks or 50 bucks or 150 bucks a month. And you're not thinking about the ultimate costs. Well, this is my follow-up question and it relates very closely. You've had Richard Duncan on your show a number of times. And I, I always find him very interesting because he has this I'll say it in my terms. He has this strange view where he'll say, you know, this is really bad. Like things are really fragile and really a mess. So maybe we should go out and, you know, give Elon Musk $10 billion to get the economy going again. I'm oversimplifying, you know, what a very intelligent man is saying. But, you know, on the other hand, we're bombarded every day with, you know, the economy's doing great. The stock market is up. All these companies are doing great. They're reporting record earnings. Inflation is low. Unemployment is low. How fragile is this system we've created today? And when you think about, you know, legacy and you think about community and you think about, you know, advising that mayor or that council member on, you know, from a policy standpoint, what what steps should they take to make their community better and stronger? How much of the fragility of just everything would weigh on your mind? I would love to have a very human conversation with a mayor and say, I appreciate that you have political pressure from today's constituencies, you know, to, to perform, to do something good, to show progress or what have you. But who are your real constituents? How will you be remembered? This is where I would want to bring legacy into the conversation with mayors and say, whatever you're doing today has a consequence. That could be a good consequence. It could be a negative consequence into the future. You may only measure it according to the next re-election campaign or the, the next election cycle. But remember, your legacy is important. How do you want to be remembered? Because if you are creating these long-term obligations that you know one constituency doesn't have to deal with, it gets pushed off onto the next generation, that's again where I think you've got to have a human conversation, not a political or, or public policy conversation, to say, are you going to own this? Are you going to own this? Because this is on you. You're doing this not for the next generation, but to the next generation. And, and you may be reaping political benefits in the immediate, but keep in mind, it's your children and grandchildren that will put you under a very different lens. Whether you're reelected or not, they will remember you and they will record this as either a benefit or a cost to society. I don't want to end the conversation without talking about the foundation of your investment strategy at, at McIlvaney, which is precious metals. It's funny because there's a certain strain of like gold bug that we've kind of culturally made into this caricature, you know, like a conspiracy theorist kind of person. But I, 
I don't know if you're aware of this, but I actually have an IRA with you guys in precious metals. And I, I have bought long bought into this idea of mitigating risk and, and having a portfolio that would be in a sense diversified because of the fragile nature, not only of our economy, but just of, of life in general. Can you just talk a little bit about the case for owning precious metals? And in particular, why would someone starting out with little savings or, or not a nest egg even consider this as part of their overall strategy and approach? Well, you know, it's difficult for me to separate um, the conversation on debt and future liabilities and, and kind of the mess that we've gotten ourselves into from what gold has been historically. Because if you go back, whether it's 5,000 years or you want to fast forward more into the eight, 17th, 18th, 19th, 20th centuries, gold has played a role as money. And that, that may sound really boring. The benefit of gold as money is that it represents a limitation. You only spend what you have. You can't create more credit if you don't have the money to back it. What we saw was a transition here in the United States, some significant dates, 1922, 1933, 1944, and 1971, where we basically degraded our money. Conference of Genoa, 1922, 1933, we came off the gold standard domestically and started the inflation process. Bretton Woods was started in 1944, where again, because we had gold in the United States, the rest of the world had been bombed to smithereens in, in World War II, we represented sort of a ballast. With the gold we had, we represented a ballast for the world monetary system. So we centered the world on ourselves, the US dollar, and the gold that backed it. 1971, we completely walked away from that. So for the first time in human history, there is no currency in the world that has gold in relationship to it. Is it any surprise that we now make any promises we want from a fiscal standpoint? We can spend anything we want and just put it on the, the proverbial credit card. Uh, and, and politicians love that because there's no limits as to what they can promise their constituencies, regardless of the cost. You, know, you completely ignore the long-term consequences to that. But a lot of this goes back to gold as something that represents stability. Now, in 5,000 years, it's not as if this hasn't been done before. There's been uh, fiscal policy experiments, monetary policy experiments. They've ended poorly, and they've come back to gold as a ballast, as something that brings stability to a financial system. I'm under no illusion or delusion that we're going to go back to the gold standard. But I think that an individual who wants to bring stability into their portfolios does so and can justify it as an insurance component, as an insurance component. It is something that represents uh, you know, counter cyclical asset to stocks. Uh, it does very well when stocks don't do well. It does very well during periods of acute inflation or deflation. Basically, if something goes wrong, then people start looking for that which has been stable in the past. They go back to the foundations of both financial stability uh, and also healthy economic growth. So that has been gold in the past. Put yourself on your old gold standard. You've basically done that with your IRA. We've tried to do that through savings tools like vaulted.com where you can save in gold, buy and sell, transact inexpensively uh, and treat it as a better bank. And you know we do that with in cooperation with uh, the Royal Canadian Mint. Gold to me is philosophically 
just well-founded in, in something that, that guarantees an individual's viability regardless of the fiscal and monetary policy experiments happening around them in their, in their day and age. The book is called The Intentional Legacy, What You Want for Your Family, Why You Want It, and How You Get There. The podcast is the McIlvaney Weekly Podcast. You're going to want to subscribe to that. We're going to be putting a link on our website for some additional information and how to get a hold of David McIlvaney if you'd like to follow up with more. Sincerely, David, it has been fantastic to chat with you, and I'm so grateful you took the time today. Thanks for the invitation. I I love the work that you're doing and uh, I'm grateful to be a part of your conversation. That's amazing. And uh, you take care and and I'll keep listening because you guys do. Seriously, I have like three podcasts I never miss and yours is uh, Wednesday mornings is always one of them. So thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. Great to be with you today. You take care. And thank you everybody for listening. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Take care. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.